Brut. New Art on Stage. Welcome to the 11th edition of Gesellschaftsspiele, The Art of Assembly. This time with the title Architectures of Hospitality. And my guests are Merve Bedier, Benjamin Förster-Baldenius from Raumlobor Berlin and Marina Otero-Versier. This edition is based on a live event at Brut Theater in Vienna on November 20th, 2021 in co-production with the Goethe Institute and its program Performing Architecture. My special thanks for this collaboration to Susanne Traub and once again and again to Brut Theater and the whole team. The Art of Assembly is a nomadic series of lectures and conversations on the potential of gatherings in art, activism and politics. If you missed the past episodes, you might want to check out our website art-of-assembly.net where you find videos of the lectures, podcasts and other material. My name is Florian Malzacher. I'm a curator and writer and the host of the series. Well, after having touched upon quite a few aspects of assemblies in our past editions, today we want to focus on the role of architecture and infrastructure for assemblies. So what kind of spatial arrangements allow what kind of gatherings? How is hospitality? How is radical democracy designed? When I browse in my mind through the images that were presented in this series so far, I think there were mainly two kinds of spatial arrangements prevalent. Very formal ones, like assemblies of assembly architectures designed by states and tradition, like courtrooms, parliaments, etc. And these are also the very ones that are often quoted or even copied in artistic works dealing with assembly. And then there are the gatherings that often take place in whatever space is available or at stake. The assemblies of activist movements, of occupations, on squares, in squatted factories, in theater foyers, behind barricades even. Their preferred form is, if possible, the circle. But sometimes the sheer number and all the limitations of space prevent any specific order. So all of these spatial arrangements represent also certain hierarchies or want to avoid them. Sometimes they just might hide them and they create borders. Even the broadest circle has its limits and be it just that certain physical and mental abilities are needed to join in or that the lack of proximity makes hearing and being heard impossible. The architectural approaches we will look at today are in one way perhaps somewhere in the middle of these two types of spatial settings. And at the same time, they try to position themselves outside of them. So on one hand, because they question, analyze, criticize the way assemblies are facilitated. And on the other hand, because they want to offer different options. And they do this with often, I would say, a pragmatic approach to utopias. The prism through which we will look at these architectures today is the one of hospitality. And it will show that hospitality, with all its seeming generosity, is quite a complex concept. Who is invited into our societies, our assemblies? What are the relationships between guests and hosts? Is unconditional hospitality possible or even desirable? Well, talking about hospitality in the arts is basically impossible without referring to Derrida, so I will do so as well, because he offers a paradoxical view and a non-fixed solution. As he writes, hospitality begins usually with a question. What is your name? How should I call you? 
And this question shows already the whole dilemma, because these are questions of care, of affection. Derrida mentions that this is a question we often ask a kid when we meet it the first time. What is your name? But these are as well questions of the law. By identifying the foreigner, they propose a pact. They create a legal subject. As Derrida says, quote, is it more just or and more loving to question or not to question? End of quote. So there, there's the law of hospitality that is unconditional, and there are the laws of hospitality in plural that, for example, also put duties on the guests. And it would be easy to say, yes, we want un unconditional hospitality, uh, but as Derrida says, this would be just abstract, utopian, illusory. And of course, it gets even more complex when one considers the etymologic proximity of the concept guest, stranger, host, ghost, and enemy in Old Greek. Uh, but I guess for us to now, for tonight, it is enough to just keep in mind that hospitality has a utopian potential as well as its pitfalls. And we will have to, the chance to talk about this after we gathered some material with which we now begin, um, I'm very happy to introduce Marina Otero-Versier. Uh, Marina is Director of Research at Head New Institute and Head of the MA in Social Design at Design Academy Eindhoven, alongside the Direction of Research Projects and Curation of Exhibition at Head New Institute since 2015. Marina has been a curator at the Shanghai Art Biennial in 2021, curator of the Dutch Pavilion at the Venice Architectural Biennial in 2018, and chief curator of the 2016 Oslo Architecture Triennial. And she has co-edited many books, of which I just want to mention the most recent ones, Lithium uh, from 2021, More Than Human 2020, Unmanned Architecture and Security Series from 2016 to 20, and Architectures of Appropriation from 2019. Marina, I'm very happy you are here and hand over the microphone to you. Thank you so much for the invitation and also for the introductions. And yeah, very happy to be here today in person to have this conversation. So thank you for coming and also to the ones that are online. Indeed, I um, was asked about architectures of hospitality, and I have decided to um, reflect on the question more broadly. Um, in many ways, I will continue reflecting on what uh, Florian has mentioned. Derrida will be very present, although not necessarily um, quoted directly. And I mean, I will talk about things that have, or I, I have experimented with in very particular projects, but uh, I think we can refer to those projects later in the conversation if needed and if there is some curiosity about it. So, what is an architecture of hospitality? I would say, imagine a door. When a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed, writes poet Naomi Shihab. That way, she continues, he will have strength enough to answer. Or by then, you will be such good friends that you don't care. In the Arab world, the strangers write to protection and shelter, 
has been honored since time immemorial. Imagine a room past that door, el salón o la sala de visitas, the visits room, the front room in a Spanish house, is used for formal social events, for receiving guests. It is a buffer zone between the public and the private area within the house. It's a room well furnished and decorated with care, not really used during normal family life, and reserved for hosting the guests. Imagine a table inside the room past the door. Leaving an empty chair at the Christmas table is a popular Polish tradition, an extra chair for an unexpected visitor. If someone actually knocks on the door, the stranger, the other, the foreigner, the guest, the host should feed them and give them shelter. Tables, rooms, doors are architectures of hospitality, architectures for welcoming the stranger or the guest, yet ones that assume that the stranger has a place where to return, that assume that the host belongs and has the right to belongings, to property, that assume that the host owns the space that the stranger doesn't. And let's be honest, idea that someone can actually own a space, a table, a room, a plot of land, a country, a world. Architecture sustains this crazy belief by drawing lines that define insides and outsides, minds and yours. Architecture sustains this crazy, fascinating belief that creates property lines and defines what is appropriate, that defines a host and a guest and the laws that orchestrate the relations between them. And it is fascinating that we believe so profoundly and act upon such a fiction because there are not hosts and guests, I will argue. We are in fact hosting each other. Hosting each other in a radical architecture of hospitality. But let's for a moment go back to the door the room and the table. If you're an architect, you imagine these figures in a space through the frame of the Cartesian grid. We are trained to do so. Doors, rooms, tables are situated in time and space as part of a spatial coordinate system. And even if you are not an architect, you can't escape the system. It has ordered the world and its doors, rooms, tables, insides and outsides. Let's think of the grid, of this grid. This coordinate system, published in 1637 in Discourse of, on Method, was one of René Descartes' most important legacies. It specifies the position of any point or object on a surface using intersecting axes as measuring guides. An apparently neutral method of categorization, the grid, the Cartesian grid, serves to draw, calculate, optimize, standardize, replicate, and ultimately to control a space. The grid rationalizes, organizes the world laying regular lines. The grid designs. It's in itself that amount of design, of architectural design. The grid not only organizes a space, also relations. 
It serves to objectify identity and categorization. Let's think further of the grid, of the lines that divide spaces and beings. The Cartesian grid goes hand in hand with the Cartesian theory of the animal machine. That is, the card referred to machines as the models to explain the functioning of organisms. Animals were equated to machines. They were equated to bodies without sound and reason. Humans, or rather, Western man, then became a unique superior being, a universal rational subject. One entitled to landscape resources and others beings domination. Western man then became a host. Entangled in the space we inhabit, Cartesian dualisms, inside-outside, up and down, men-animal, sustain the compartmentalization and instrumentalization of relations. They hold specism, define and discriminate entities, bodies and identities, make gendered and raised bodies. Cartesian dualisms, epitomizing the grid, sustain the, condi the conditional notions of hospitality. They stimulate the human's crudest ambitions, the ambitions to, that drove the mechanical age and the formation of capitalism, the dreams of mastery of space and time, of territory and resources, at the expense of ethical and ecological awareness. Cartesian dualisms make hospitality conditional. The grid sells a form of pragmatism, Dutch, American, whatever pragmatism, that equates hospitality with democratic life. Yet an idea of democracy that respects the difference of individuals and communities, generally in the spirit of tolerance and quotas instead of mutual care. The grid prevents unconditional hospitality. It has sustained and kept sustaining property, ownership, privileges, categories, borders. The grid supports extractivism. It is actually the blueprint of colonial plantations and cash books. It constructs distinction and categories that delineate what is alive and what is lifeless. It sees commodities where there are living beings. It sees no life in the place of living ecosystems. Think of the grid. The grid is ubiquitous. It permeates spaces, extends past the door, any door. Yet the grid doesn't bring commonality. Its bare assertive lines produce differential social spaces. Inside, outside, in and outs, up and downs, in the room, at the table, spaces that facilitate or prevent the counter encounter of bodies. The grid, the grid is ubiquitous. It permeates spaces, extends past the door, any door, yet it sells the idea that it is possible, rightful and appropriate, to enclose a space. It validates the fiction that someone can actually own a space. It constructs the historical position of landlord and host. When you no longer see it, when you no longer see the grid, it's because it has grown inside. From the inner, it creates an aesthetic, aesthetic and repressive, repressive experience, an illusion of order and legibility. An ontological version of the world so perfected that it seems inevitable. Isn't it beautiful, the grid? Within the grid, behind the door, in the room, at the table, holding to our discrete individual body, we are captive of the fear of the unknown. 
to the fear of the foreigner, the stranger, the ghost, the parasite, the other. Yet the body is multiple, the seat and the room are never empty, and the door can be fully closed. Pass the door in the room at the table, imagine a body, your body. Liberal humanism presents the notion that individuals are autonomous, discrete, self-contained, ontologically separate islands. Yet we are porous entities, accommodating and kept alive by microbes, bacteria, fungi, all central to the maintenance and the healthy body of our body and their body. Being human, being human is a multi-species achievement dependent on corporeal hospitality. Bodies enact radical hospitality, one that questions the category of human. The body, subjected to Cartesianism, to categorization, it is actually an architecture of exceeding categories. Pass the door in the room, at the table, imagine a body, your now multiple body, next to other bodies, breathing bodies. In breathing, bodies inhale and host each other across times and spaces. In breathing, we create inter interdependencies between bodies and bodies and bodies at the atmosphere. It is not a being next to others, but being with and in others, alterity within the self. What is an architecture of hospitality, of radical hospitality, you ask? One in which we host each other in a radical welcome, an architecture of permeable, erotic bodies and collapsed times and spaces, an architecture that questions modernity, that challenges how modernity educates to know, describe, and categorize the world, that invites immeasurability and exceeding categories, human, non-human, up and down, inside, outside, now and then, mine and yours. Now, let's go back to the empty chair. Pass the door in the room at the table next to your now multiple body, an empty chair. Some historians argue that the empty chair at the, that the poles leave at the table is reserved for those who passed away. The Spanish Sala de Visitas was also the place where the recently deceased were placed before their funeral. Ghosts, the dead, the ancestors, the spirits are woven in the fabric of the daily life and architecture, being often considered equal and rightful inhabitants of spaces around the world. They have sometimes a reserved seat, an altar, a corner, a room, a home. Their presence challenges ideas of linearity of time and progress. Ghosts are also the center of stories of the colonization, confrontations between colonialists who believe in the right to dominate and control, and indigenous peoples, the lands, and the spirits that resist domination. Struggles between the order imposed by the greed and the mysterious hostility and unhomely experience with which ghosts haunt the colonizer's mind, plans, orders, categories, and worlds. We don't own anything. We are part of everything. A being and becoming with the spirits, ancestors, and Mother Earth, explains indigenous leader Ronaldo Jumire. Ghosts are the other, the stranger, neither present nor absent, neither dead nor alive. They are who fracture all traditional conceptions of temporality. And in doing so, the position of the host and the guest collide into an instance, 
that contains all past, present, and future instances, creating an encounter where laws of hospitality are no longer valid, where laws and rights of property and ownership are no longer relevant, where the laws of hospitality and property are overshadowed by the respect to and the rights of past, present, and future generations. In this space, now referring to Lucy Garay's work, is where we care to speak to each other without taking each other's breath away. What is an architecture of radical hospitality, you ask? A non-Cartesian architecture. One difficult to describe under dual categories, one that grows in predictable environments, a relation between a space, matter, and organisms, one that morphs slowly and melts platonic solids, geometries, lines, doors, rooms, and tables inside, outside, minds, and yours. A porous and indeterminate architecture, and yet one capable of dismantle, dismantling the boundaries that fictionously enclose the world, body, home, nation. A space of radical welcome where historical categories of host and guest are dismantled, where welcoming is not only the labor of gender racialized precarious bodies, where we are intimately connected to our own and other vulnerability. A space where we overcome mutual fear and distrust. What is an architecture of radical hospitality, you ask? A political space where we find and inhale each other. Where is the possibility of being changed by the other, opening up to previously unconceivable futures? An architecture of radical hospitality is a non-disciplined architecture, one that demands the architecture canon to be put aside. It doesn't suggest that the canon has to be erased or forgotten, just perhaps acknowledged as serving interests that are no longer pertinent, too often constructed by means that are not only outdated, but no longer ethically or ecologically tolerable. Open doors, guest rooms, and empty chairs are just not enough. This is, I will argue, not the time for hosts or masters arguing for their right or domination and ownership. The adoption of humility, even vulnerability, is a political position. It is perhaps the position that challenges the Cartesian postulates, the grid, that has guided architecture and its dreams of infinite progress that challenges the white masculinity subject that sees the world as his own possession, and that has been too long at the core of architecture. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marina. And now I would like to introduce Benjamin Förster-Baldenius from Raumlauer Berlin. Benjamin founded in 1999 the Institute für Angewandte Baukunst in Berlin and since then also works with Raumlober Berlin on the culture of the city and public space. He plans, draws and realizes installations and interventions in public space, makes scenographies and dramaturgies for stages, squares and exhibitions and develops event and teaching formats. Most recently he realized the Floating University whose association he has chaired since 2018. He has worked for numerous festivals and theatres, amongst them I just want to mention very egoistically Sterische Herbst Festival, because that's where we uh, collaborated several times, for example, for the Truth is Concrete event in 2012. 
Benjamin was professor at several universities. And of course, I have to mention that in 2021, Raumlabor Berlin was awarded the Golden Lion at the Architectural Biennial in Venice. Thank you, Benjamin, for joining and the microphone is yours. I'm also glad that I'm here. It's, uh, it's, it's good. I haven't been in Vienna for a while and I'm glad to, uh, to be in a space with other people and uh, that we can talk now. I won't take the last sentence of uh, <laughs> the speaker before me too literal. Otherwise, I would have to sit down again. Um, uh, but I try not to uh, describe what I'm describing as, uh, as if I'm in the middle of it. I mean, I'm in the middle of it, of course, because I'm talking about, mostly about my work. But I'm, um, uh, I, I, yeah. I hope that uh, uh, you can see at least the attempt to... Um, to find a solution and, uh, uh, and to see myself as part of the problem. Um, the, if I see the, 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 the first invitation that I had to this was about the architecture of assembly, and then it somehow shifted to hospitality, uh, which of course is, is an aspect. And then I, I thought about this, and I'm, um, I, I thought about them, actually the aesthetics that's the first thing that I think of when I when 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 the term architecture is being used, like the, uh, what are the aesthetics of the architecture of hospitality, and um, and if you think of that, it's far too often looks like that, right? Um, it, uh, we don't really know what this is. Could be a fairground, or could be. Uh, a welcome center for refugees, or um, it could be uh, a temporary airport uh, annex, or it could be uh, a, a sports facility, or whatever. But no, no, no. In this case, it's the G28 summit meeting place, and uh, uh, and so it's a uh, it's a place where a lot of people come. And uh, uh, that don't live in the city of Glasgow, and they're being welcomed um, here uh, in a, in spaces that are artificially uh, ventilated uh, with a very very high output of CO2, and uh, and you wonder how uh, in these in these halls that don't even have windows you can talk about the climate. Um, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a very strange situation, I think. And, um, and, and if I think about places that I, um, where, where I would expect a certain, you know, the, the, the places where, where guests are coming today, like um, uh, a border control situation. So, you know, let's talk about them. The border between the European Union and Belarus at the moment. What, you know, where, where is the architecture of, uh, of hospitality? Um, airports where people arrive, you know, they just look like that. Um, hospitals are not particularly welcoming in, in any way, even though they are for hospitality. 
And uh, so it's, it's, in a sense, we are more, if we look at the, at the precise outcomes of, uh, of these architectures that should be symbolically welcoming people, it's more hostility than hospitality that, 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 you, that you approach. So I, I was thinking about, um, this is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like here, right? We're also in a black box. We don't have windows. We're sitting, I'm, sit, I'm standing in front of you. You're sitting there on the chairs. Uh, we have a, a very traditional kind of panel here. We're not sitting in a circle. But, uh, but still, um, uh, we, we know that we have other forms of exchange, hopefully. When, um, oh, that's a, that's an interesting information. I'll leave it for a moment. Um, but then, then I thought, like, okay, when, um, I'm, 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 I'm not a theorist. Right? I'm, I'm really, in a way, more an architect. I'm, I make projects, um, uh, I, mostly with people that I like, and I, uh, I try to do the best to get aware of these kind of situations and, and change them. And sometimes you come to buildings where, uh, where everything is solved already. This is, for example, I, I was allowed to work in this building for a year as a professor for transdisciplinary design at the Volkwagen University in Essen. This is the Sana building in uh, the Zeche Zollverein. And it is a fucking great building. If you ever get the chance to go there, go inside and, and spend a day in it. And, and it's hilarious. When you go inside... Yeah, just the, you know, the, the windows that, are, that go to all directions, that kind of frame the, the outside, frame like everything that's happening out there. The weather becomes a dramatic um, a movie, and, uh, and, and, even, and also, the, 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 of course, the, 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 the post-industrial landscape becomes a, 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 a great scenery for whatever is happening inside. Um, when I was allowed to work there, uh, the, the space was completely empty because the, for some reason the Volkwang University uh, didn't, uh, the, the, at least the teachers, they didn't want to work there because it was too far out and, and they, they would rather work in the old 70s university building in the middle of the city um, and also the students, they, you know, there was only one tramway, only goes every 20 minutes and uh, and you have to go back by 8 o'clock because then the last tramway is going. So nobody wanted to work there. But I uh, decided that we have to uh, now kind of take a certain kind of ownership over that space. And uh, the first thing that we, that we did with the students was we, um, we opened up a kitchen and we invited people like uh, Florian, for example, was there. Uh, act actors of some, some kind of urban change of the Hua area. Uh, and there's lots of them, lots of interesting people, and we uh, we made it a kind of a, a space where we can invite people, and that is, uh, and 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 of course it was a, 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 a super good space to start with because the space already is uh, is a great space to invite people to, and then if you give them food, everybody's coming, and uh, you don't even have to worry about you know that normally in these kind of positions you don't have money to pay people to invite them. So, but if you say, 
my students have cooked, you want to come? <laughs> it works quite well. Uh, and then you can have a, uh, then you can have a talk uh, that goes quite far and it's very intimate and, 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 uh, and the students really get interested in uh, what the, the people that we together decided to invite uh, have to say. So, uh, and then we started uh, filling up the space with these kind of crates and boxes and uh, started playing around with it. And, um, and deal with questions of uh, you know, how, how can we negotiate space. The, the, the reason why we started with this was that we had um, a collaboration um, in mind with, uh, um, with the, uh, another university, the uh, University of Political Science in Paris, where uh, Bruno Latour is teaching in a, a small group of uh, students uh, in a kind of institute that he called SPEEP, the Sciences Po Experimentation in Arte Politique, so the Art and Politics Experimentation Studio, and uh, they were preparing a, um, uh, an event that should happen um, a couple of weeks before the climate summit in Paris. And, um, and the, the, the idea of it was, of course, if you know, everybody knows Bruno Latour, that this is a, that this is a summit that is, um, in a way, a pre-enactment. Florian talks about it uh, extensively in his presentation um, uh, talk for the Art of Assembly also. <laughs> so I don't have to explain every detail in it. But the, the idea was to invite 300 or more students, uh, mostly of political science, that take over a certain kind of um, uh, uh, role uh, in the summit, either a nascent state, of course, or something that is also, um, or an, an, an entity that is somehow affected by, by climate change. So, um, uh, and what we were doing was that we were trying to figure out what kind of spaces does it need to make a, a positive outcome uh, for a climate summit. Of course, it's uh, quite difficult to uh, to design a space that supports a positive outcome of a of a of a conference, but we were addressing it. And the um, um, and the good thing about it was that the event where uh, was about to happen in a marvelous theater that also, in a way, looks a bit like it's a very neutral space. It's a, a, a bit like an industrial hall, but it's the uh, the Théâtre des Amandiers in um, in Nanterre, in the outskirts of Paris, and. It has uh, a space uh, that uh, you see on the photo that has a huge uh, tour, a huge door that you can open up to the outside. And um, uh, together with Philippe Ken, who was a director of, uh, of the theater at that time and working with Bruno Latour, we decided to, uh, to, um, to, to make, take advantage of that. And, uh, uh, and so... Uh, within this uh, thing where all these students came and, and they took over a role, like they, you know, one, one group was talking for the forest or for the, for, for, for the oceans or for, the, uh, for um, certain drowning nations or stones uh, and so on. And with uh, this guy, uh, we decided on a set of um, objects, and you can see them already in the photos, these tables that appear in different shapes that... Uh, can also be used as blackboards uh, 
on one side, so you can adapt uh, and use uh, uh, everything that is there, and they can be pushed around, and they can be assembled in different kind of, you know, whatever, however you, 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 you think the, the present situation in these five days summit uh, needs it, you can rearrange it and come together uh, in different forms. So either you know, there, there's these smaller groups where people come together and there's bigger groups where everybody is discussing together with each other, where everybody needs a, a computer and so on. And, uh, and what you can already see in the back, the door opens and the climate can also come in and, uh, and become a part of the, of the conference. So you, you, know, you feel if it's cold or if it's warm and, and you can actually, the, the climate invades the conference. And um, that was a super, uh, super good um, uh, experience because um, I don't know if this was the reason why, the, why the, this pre-enactment of the climate summit actually worked out uh, po with a positive outcome, um, but, uh, but I hope so. Um, I come to... Uh, Next, and there was audience, of course, as well. Some more photos. And uh, here you can see it from the outside. We are, that's the door closed, and here it's open. So, you know. From time to time, like um, it opened up, and if, whenever there was a, 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 a decision that couldn't be taken, the chimney made a little dance. Um, and the way that we developed it was uh, with this game that we put up in the, in the workshop of the theater, where uh, together with all the people that were preparing it, we kind of pre-enacted the pre-enactment uh, and tried to figure out what kinds of spatial protagonists we need uh, to, to have this positive outcome. All right, this is, this is this. It's also super good. It's the only um, French uh, theater that actually has a workshop. Most theaters don't have, I mean, no, they just have very, very tiny workshops. In this case, you can build up the whole stage like in a German theater. The, the other aspect that I want to talk about is uh, that um, I, I experienced that um, um, actually to get, to, to, to have this contact with the, with the outside world is super important. In this case, we see the um, the, the Fondation Suisse of uh, Le Corbusier. And, and uh, I think what is super great about that is the entrance of the building. So you enter the building and you can, you, know, you can sit outside the building and it's the only social space that the, that the building has is actually underneath, underneath the building uh, uh, between these columns. And then you enter this little box on the right and there's just a small kind of foyer and a small room that is big enough to have a big piano and... Uh, uh, and, and a Le Corbusier painting on the wall. Um, the, the, the only problem that they had um, when they wanted to um, uh, make a party for the 75th anniversary of the building, and wanted, uh, that was in November, and they wanted to invite the uh, Swiss ambassador and have a classical music concert, was that they didn't have a space uh, to make that party. So uh, what we proposed to them was that we um, uh, use this space outside underneath the so-called piloti, uh, the lower, and, uh, and make this kind of in, you know, very thin uh, permeable 
skin around it uh, and, uh, and, and use that as a temporary um, party location. Well, it was very, <coughs> wasn't really a party. It was more like a, uh, an official event. Uh, and that worked quite well. And, uh, and, and this, of course, if you know Rablabo's work, is a, is a format that we work a lot with. We have these, we have these vans uh, that are traveling uh, through the countryside or in, in, around cities that have these kind of plastic, huge plastic bags inside that can be blown up as a space where you can come together. What we experience with this is through the transparency of the space, uh, that you can be outside seeing the people inside, and you can be inside seeing the people outside. Um, uh, but still, there's this kind of, it is still a protected space um, that uh, the, uh, there is a certain magic about it, and there's a certain you know, wish to, to be, become part of it and go inside because you see what's inside and you want to see what it looks like from the inside looking outside. And... Uh, and, and, uh, and it's also a great space to be in. Um, and so we, um, this, uh, this, is a, this is a very um, um, good, good working model. And uh, the, this the kitchen monument. The other one was the space cluster. The kitchen monument is still I, now, I think, for f 15 years touring around Europe and still being invited somewhere. It's more a problem that we are uh, that we are uh, architects and we would like to do something new, and that we, we, the, the people all want the old thing, and we, and we are not you know we are not renting out beer tents, so we are, we, we always look very precisely on who is inviting us, of course. And what we what we're doing with these uh, with with these objects is we really we, we, we started becoming curators of uh, what's going on in there, uh, and actually the. Uh, we found out that the, uh, that by by um, looking more at the social practice that is uh, that is happening, we, uh, makes completely sense because then suddenly the architecture uh, uh, can be seen through completely different eyes, and you can um, and and you find out that actually space is not only made by this you know by these whatever, walls and, and, uh, and ceilings and floors, and, and even if, it is a, if, if, if it's a, a funny space like that, uh, but that it's actually made by social interaction. So the, the, and and that's, where we, that's what we are working on still uh, at the moment, and, uh, uh, the, and here comes the floating university where we're trying to expand that and, and experiment even more with the, with the spacious different spaces of social interaction where we have, you know, like a, a lecture room with a pool in the middle where people can uh, put their feet and you can also have a drink or you can smoke a cigarette if you want or, you know, and then there's dragonflies uh, passing through the lecture hall and, uh, and uh, you hear dogs barking and, and then eventually there's uh, other things happening. Why is that photo coming? That's funny. Um... That's Jonah Friedman. Jonah, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, it's, uh, but Jonah Friedman is, uh, is a cool reference. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but um, he just died last year. Jonah Friedman is, uh, is an architect who all his life was dealing with the question of 
how do people live together, how do they come together, and what kind of spaces are needed. And, and his apartment is, was, uh, during the past probably 50 years, uh, the, one of the m spaces of the most uh, 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 hospitality that, that, that I can imagine. He always invited everybody into his apartment, and you could see his work in his apartment. You could wander around his apartment with him inside and look at everything that's there and, and, and take out whatever you wanted and discuss uh, uh, the, the, the architecture of cohabitation, more or less, uh, with him. And um, I skipped this one. Wait a minute. I don't talk about this project now. I go to the next one because I just talk about the floating university now. Okay? Because it's getting too long. White, middle-aged European men shouldn't talk so long. So, I... so floating university, is uh, it's this space that's in the middle of the... Um, a rainwater collection basin of the Temple of Airport in the middle of Berlin, uh, two minutes from the subway, and uh, and the space was completely unknown until um, we uh, managed to open up the door um, because it's an infrastructure uh, of the city uh, and and nobody was allowed to actually enter. So um, we we made this proposal that this is an infrastructure that is actually that can be used. For for something else, and uh, and I still don't know how it happened that we that somebody gave us a key. Uh, I know how it happened that we had funding for it because it came from the German Cultural Foundation because it was the 100-year Bauhaus uh, anniversary, and it kind of fit into that program. And then um, and then we were able to build this campus into the into this basin that is eventually flooded from time to time, but not always, and um, uh, where, thank you, I'm almost there, <laughs> and, and then we invited all kinds of people, artists, but also uh, groups of universities, neighbors, uh, kids from the neighborhood, schools, to simultaneously uh, start uh, using the space for whatever uh, uh, kind of learning situation they, they needed. This is Ton Maton. Um, and uh, this is a group from Colombia that just built a bicycle race track uh, that they're sitting on having a beer with a floating university in the back. Uh, this is a group of the kids' university making a survey uh, in the mud, uh, looking at all the, all the dirt that's been spilled in and inventing stories about it, uh, talking about it, and this is a, a young group of students making a performance in front of uh, the audience. And all these things are happening at the same time, so they're kind of, um, uh, it's, um, it's really a space where uh, cross-pollination is happening. And, uh, and it's also, and that's maybe where, where it comes to hospitality, it's inviting you uh, to take part in something and to also look at something that normally would happen behind closed doors. So if it, that, that's the good thing of things happening outside, I think, <laughs> on the street, uh, that, uh, that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be uh, 2G plus uh, to enter a space uh, and then uh, go through one door and another door and then the curtain and then you come into a space and there's something interesting happening. But it you can actually go there with no reason at all without penny, paying any money and, and become a part of 
a lecture by Dirk Becker, uh, uh, this, you know, a, a philosopher, sociologist, talking about uh, systemic um, uh, philosophy. And, uh, or uh, see uh, um, whatever kind of exhibition the kids are doing or a performance by students from The Hague. And, um, and I, I don't know if there's a point. I don't think there's a point there. Maybe that's good so that we can discuss. Thanks a lot, Benny. And now our last speaker for today is Merve Bedir. Uh, and I'm very happy you're here. Merve is an architect based in Rotterdam and Istanbul. Her ongoing research examines infrastructures of hospitality and mobility. And by this is also one of the reasons why we talk today about hospitality. And a second line of research follows the human and non-human relationships in the context of ecology and cybernetics. She's the co-founder of Our Formal Academy, an experimental school program at Pearl River Delta region, and a founding member of Mutfak Workshop, uh, focusing on kitchen as a cultural space in Gaziantep, and a founding member of the Center of Spatial Justice in Istanbul. Melve holds a PhD from Delft University of Technology and has taught at several universities. And she also has curated several shows. I just mentioned the ones that was also uh, inspiring for today's topic, Vocabulary of Hospitality in Istanbul uh, 2015. Most recently, her work, Unsettled Urbanism, was exhibited in Matadero, Madrid in 2020 and in Venice Architectural Biennial's main exhibition uh, with this year. And, uh, very happy to say that this next to Ramla was uh, part of this exhibition was one of the very few uh, object, uh, presentations that I actually also personally found very inspiring. Another recent work, which is in relation to our talk today, I suppose is Floor Table, which will be presented by the Smithsonian Design Museum next year. And uh, Melba Pack participated in numerous important biennials, exhibitions, etc., and also wrote extensively for several magazines. Tonight you will talk about hospitality and the politics of the floor table. Thank you for joining. I start with a, with a big thank you to Florian and also a big thank you to Anika and the whole team at Brut uh, for making this evening possible. And especially to Anika for everything that she has done for me throughout these three, four days. I really have to acknowledge that several, several times. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I will be speaking from my gut, so bear with me. I will try to keep it at 15 minutes. Um, and I will um, actually maybe... Uh, before I start, I want to kind of point out a couple of things that I found super interesting uh, in Marina's and Benny's talks, and uh, which I think could also give us, a, gives me uh, a space to add on. And also uh, during the discussion could be interesting. So the one thing, uh, for instance, was about the question of can a space be neutral at all? Um, the other one was about, uh, that came up in Marina's talk about breathing, and in Benny's talk, as the climate inviting the conference, thinking in this case, this, uh, this uh, key transfer transversal agent that could enable radical hospitality. And then the, the other one that was common in both talks, which was super interesting, is about the porosity of the border and the boundary. And then the, the last one, which again uh, was interesting uh, from the two talks, is about the cross-pollination at floating school. 
creating the space where we can be hosting each other. So actually taking the, uh, the, the, the rather the word form rather than the noun form, hosting, continuous hosting, which, which was brought up by Marina. Um, so from there, actually, there is not much for me to talk. They have already mentioned so many things that are very interesting and important that should be brought up in this topic. And again, I'm a little bit guilty of the evening for having, um, yeah, for the project vocabulary of hospitality. Um, and actually with that, if I may start uh, with a mention and with an acknowledgement of my friends and collaborators in Turkey, in Gaziantep, a city on the Turkish side of the border with Syria, uh, who are very much the agents and the subjects of this, uh, this talk that I will be delivering, but who wouldn't be able to be here due to the European border regimes and the Frontex policing and uh, who would be illegalized, who are illegalized from their freedom of movement, from their right to uh, freedom of movement. Um, so it's a privilege to be speaking here. So I want to start with acknowledging that. And this also uh, brings me to, to the research, to the work that I've been working on, that I've been in since 2013, 14, in some ways. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the notion of hospitality actually uh, started from the, the research, uh, doing research on hospitality. This idea started from uh, this very notion uh, to host someone, to, to or to be to get or to be guest to someone, or the the idea of hospitality. Who owns uh, hospi the right to hospitality? Uh, it's something that came up um, a lot. Uh, in the government's uh, language against migrants, uh, the hospitality of the of the state, the hospitality of the nation state, the hospitality of the government, the hospitality of uh, of uh, policy, uh, and it was literally used this way: how hospitable, ho how good hosts we are as nation or as state that we are opening our doors, and. In reality, when we think about it, it's actually a complete appropriation and confiscation of the term and by and all, its all meanings and to kind of um, also try to hijack and hide the embedded uh, violence in it, right? So it's actually very violent, the term hospitality, if we think about it that way. I mean, uh, how can you, uh, for, for instance, even if you go back to the Greek city-state, uh, again, something that Marina exemplified very nicely, after three days, you are not a guest anymore. You have to learn the language, you have to uh, obey the rules uh, of the state that you are uh, knocking on the door of. So after three days, you need to abide the rules of the state. So you are, you are ne not necessarily a citizen, but you are still subject to the, to the rules of the state. So here comes my obligatory quotation from Derrida <laughs> of the, of to for tonight. Um, so he says, the foreigner is first of all foreign to the legal language in which the duty of hospitality is formulated, the right to asylum, its limits, norms, policing, etc. He has to ask for hospitality in a language which, by definition, is not his own, the one imposed on him by the master of the house, the host, the king, the lord, the authorities, the nation, the state, the father. The personage, this personage, imposes on him translation into their own language, and that's the first act of violence. So, in fact, 
while asking people to speak our language, we are even Im implying violence on them. So from here comes actually the initial motivation to kind of show how hospitality, the embedded violence in the term hospitality, and to also show how this reflects in urban space. And then also to twist the, 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 the narrative a bit and take it further, um, uh, and here, well, in this conversation in general, I use the term migrants. I'm not getting into the legal terminology. Um, but basically how, uh, let's say, for the lack of a better uh, way of um, talking about different, uh, different um, ownership or belonging, senses of belonging to a certain place, between citizens and migrants, or between citizens alike and migrants alike. How do these relationships of hospitality kind of reflect themselves on urban space? So it's, it's both about the government, just like in Derrida's uh, tech, uh, uh, saying, but also among different uh, roles of hosts and guests, let's, let's say. So from there, we actually, um, I actually started uh, researching uh, different spaces of hospitality within the city of Istanbul, uh, looking at uh, neighborhoods that are recently uh, emptied out, uh, evacuated for several reasons of urban transformation that kind of started to host migrant people, uh, or uh, the case of a detention center that was uh, that is about ghosting uh, people. You know, that is about that is the last space that a, uh, that a person will see before they are deported. Um, or in another case, a football stadium that becomes a space of hospitality, actually, where, again, there is a possibility of continuous hosting uh, within all the complexity of hospitality brings forward uh, in the football stadium with the migrant football league in Istanbul, where you see different uh, uh, people from different backgrounds coming together, different nations from the larger African continent, in this case, 12 teams set up and playing with each other and uh, creating a space of hospitality among the citizens alike and migrants alike. Or in another case, looking at the names of streets uh, given by migrants within the city and make it visible to the host. Uh, so on and so forth. So there were several, or yeah, one more example, uh, a, a temporary summer camp becoming a migrant, migrant camp uh, again in Istanbul. And these works all, were all uh, started to be researched um, by me, but then also kind of inviting several other people to the to the conversation. So it's so they're also not all uh, realized by me in the end. Uh, so this way, yeah, I mean the whole idea was basically, and this is kind of ongoing, uh, not only in Istanbul, uh, but in other places in Hong Kong, in Melbourne, in uh, uh, in Calais, in Lesbos, uh, Plovdiv, uh, uh, Bulgaria, uh, in in different places. Let's say in. Uh, around, let's say, Europe, or Fortress Europe, shall we say, uh, but also in other places in the world, uh, looking at the idea of hospitality, because yes, I started with the, with the motivation or with the provocation of this hijacking of the term, but also, uh, actually, if we look elsewhere, we see the same term being implemented by governments or by uh, other, again, let's say, hosts alike in different contexts. Um, so from there, um, it kind of moved on uh, because of all the, let's say, connections and the friendships that, that friendships that were made uh, during this research. Uh, the idea was to continue uh, um, 
uh, with the kitchen. I'm, I'm skipping the in-between story for the sake of time, uh, but the kitchen uh, around 2015, actually during this research was ongoing, the kitchen was started by um, myself and several other women living in Gaziantep in the southern uh, city of um, uh, Turkey uh, that borders uh, Aleppo and Syria. So the kitchen was very much, uh, let's say, a space of um, yeah, solidarity, uh, a space where also immediate help, support is also provided uh, in the form of food in this case. Uh, it was really a space where a certain economy could be provided for the women working there. Uh, and then it also continued uh, as its essential aim to be a space for uh, creating ideas, uh, creating ideas about living together. So this was also an assertion at the time. Uh, uh, yeah, I shouldn't claim ownership of the statement. It was an assertion at the time by several civil society and uh, citizens from Turkey insisting that we want to live together. And this was a continuous insistence, and it is still a continuous insistence, that we want to live together. So how is it possible? How is it possible to live together? Again, how, how is it possible to, let's say, cancel the, uh, the, the, the host and guest, uh, or make it continuous, or make it unconditional, or make it, uh, or enable a, a, a space where we can be hosts and guests to each other? Um, so the kitchen, uh, from this, uh, well, the kitchen itself has a, uh, uh, it was basically around the floor table. Uh, a floor table that is in circular form, uh, which is, let's say, 30 centimeters elevated from the floor, and everybody sits around it. Um, and it's the, uh, the floor table, I mean, it makes me think of Marcel Mauss and the relationship to the chair. Again, you know, objects open up this discussion and conversation always. It's very That's maybe the one thing that's interesting about them, talking about design by news. Um, so chairs, yeah, I mean, Marcel Mauss talks about the chairs and the way they relate to, uh, that they connect, uh, they kind of, he kind of compares with this still very colonial ethnographic understanding to me, to me, but it, which is still interesting where he talks about the chair in the Indian context and the British context and he kind of compares the two societies to each other, how they sit, how the Indians sit with or without the chair, and how the British sits with the chair. Um, and I have to say, the, the story of the floor table in Turkey, again, is a very, um, let's say, parallel story. Uh, the floor table is the one that you find in the village, not in the city. The floor table is the, is the one you find in the squatting uh, uh, informal neighborhoods, not in the, in the formal city. The floor table is not for the citizen. It's not for the modern society. It is for the one that needs to be modernized. It, it is the one that needs to learn how to be modern. It is for the one how to learn to be a good citizen. The floor table is for the one that comes from the rural, uneducated, and something to be ashamed of, honestly. So how do you, you know, talk about this? Or how do you, sub how do you turn this table, <laughs> is maybe the question. Um, but then what we, I mean, we also saw some, so we basically every, every citizen uh, needs to learn to sit at the high table with a chair and to use cutlery and, you know, proper eating manners and so on. 
And this was civilization. This was, this was, this is civilization. This is being modern. Um, but what we saw, which was interesting again, uh, with the recent understanding of, uh, modern, of the understanding of the modern or, or, or postmodern or however we call it, um, the floor table came back, uh, with the, uh, new elite. The floor table became something to be proud of. The floor table became something to be continuity of tradition. The floor table became something to be, uh, became uh, something to, uh, to, uh, yeah, like, uh, receive our guests at. Uh, so then this time, part of the society which wasn't sitting at the floor table became the others, or the, or the one that are excluded, or the one that are, you know, shamed uh, or pushed away. And the ones who, who were sitting around the floor table were now the owners of culture, history, citizenship, and so on, or the right to host. So the idea of uh, doing the floor table, just like that 30 centimeter high, the traditional floor table, but using it within the kitchen as the women coming from different backgrounds, in this case was you know, killing that appropriation. It, but it is also killing the other table too. It's kind of, a, uh, you know. Um, and from here I'll jump to another quote and transition to another quote and that will be the end of my story. Uh, Ulus Bakar, a Cypriot uh, philosopher and sociologist, talks about um, architecture of proximities, uh, architecture of intervals actually. Uh, and he talks, up, talks about two things that determines uh, architectural proximity or spatial proximity. He talks about one, uh, the uh, space that, the proximity that sits between two subjects. So he insists on the, the term subject. So not necessarily, they don't have to be uh, people, humans. They can also be non-humans. Um, but with an agency, and then the other is the principle of participation. So, how the, so proximity and participation are the two things that determine uh, architectural proximity. And here, maybe with the floor table uh, and in relation to the kitchen, uh, we can actually bring up the notion of uh, uh, proximity and uh, participation. And with that participation, f for the women in the kitchen, in terms of taking decisions together, in terms of disagreeing, in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, a discussion that is uh, productive and uh, uh, hosting each other, and creating a space of solidarity in all ways, both uh, physical, digital, tra transnational. Um, uh, and this way, let's say, con uh, creating a, a space of continuous hosting, let's say. So that shall be my proposal for this evening. And thank you all very much for listening. Thanks a lot. Um, well. I think maybe to start, because uh, Maria, you kind of raised the stakes quite high in the beginning. <laughs> so uh, um, uh, before I ask you, so did we come closer to the idea of unconditional hospitality with, with these examples? Uh, I, I just want to say, of course, for me, it's super interesting with architecture that somehow things become very concrete. 
uh, so so in art you can you can you know you know to utopian space you don't really have to prove it you can develop it in theory and so on with architecture in the end at least when it's realized and not just a a, a model or, or even in the model already it becomes concrete and it becomes also compromised i mean with all these examples of course we would fight pitfalls to it so so since you do, when you demand <laughs> um, unconditional hospitality is architect is, is did we get closer to it and where um, what would be the way or, uh, to get closer to it cool uh, okay good question i it's not that i demand i think there is already existing so the reader was saying that it was almost impossible and i say that there are ways in which there is unconditional hospitality and i was trying to raise three points one that you know Human bodies are not only human, so we are multiple. Therefore, the category of the human that is at the center of architecture not, not, doesn't apply. And therefore, we are a space of multiple, like hosting each other, like different beings. The other was a time, that this idea of progress that generally applies also to the idea we conceive architecture. And I was trying to think about other cosmologies in which you know, temporalities are collapsing. Um, and that happens already for at least many, many uh, societies thinking that way. And then I was thinking about the question of property. And well, if you ask me, I will prefer a society in which property is not something in the hands of a few people. And I've been working with the squatters in the Netherlands for a long time. So for me, these questions are already examples of opening up. Obviously, we have talked about tables and doors and windows and chairs and air, and those are also spaces that you know maybe um, could be even further developed, uh, rethought according to these terms. I was not referring to you when I was looking at white masculinity subject. I think your architecture, for instance, to be very concrete, I think the ways in which you occupy a space with your, you know, these temporary spaces, you challenge many times the, you know, the preconceived idea of ownership of that space. You literally occupy. And the question of open university is also an idea of like openness. The, the, the projects that you were describing are a question, are, are talking about permeability, porosity. I was bringing it to the, maybe the space of the, to start with, with the body, to say sometimes we imagine that we are a sealed entity and we are not, we are porous. And what happens if that idea of porosity brings in a scale? So it's maybe a kind of seems a bit radical, but in a way we're trying to say, I'm not requesting it, it's already there. And what if we think about architecture through these other paradigms? What will be then architecture when you think about more than human, multiple spaces and time, so the rights of future generations? So you don't uh, build for now, but to respect and honor the past and the present and the future. And yeah, property, I guess, is something that many people get very nervous about it. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I also question that architects or architecture has takes for granted the uh, question of ownership. Does it respond a little bit? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, maybe to to, uh, to continue in this vein with project you mentioned. Uh, I mean, both of you. It's, I mean, that both of you worked with the idea of the kitchen is probably also not a surprise. I mean, it's a it's a it's a good example, and it's also a, in a way a popular example. Also expanding to all the notion of food that has been become more important again in recent years. Um, 
uh, but what I was wondering, like maybe can you you already started a bit, but maybe you can expand and then also you Benny, like how how the kitchen, the concrete kitchen and the situation and or this and the, the concrete and the symbolic uh, floor table uh, from a rather small group in a household and and uh, people meeting there, how how it connects to to the outside or how how it can be scaled up in a way or how is it in networking in a bigger scale or is it something that stays in a in in in, in, in also as a metaphor in a, in a small in a smaller space in this case the kitchen was um, almost natural to start from because yeah like as a woman also your space is seen as in the kitchen and you know it relates to motherhood, it relates to caring, uh, and all that. But uh, in in a way, there's also, you know, the idea of the public kitchen or the communal kitchen or the com com uh, common kitchen, which is also very much embedded in the culture of the of the uh, fertile crescent, that region that includes uh, Gaziantep and Aleppo and others. Uh, that, yeah, the kitchen is very much everybody comes together to eat together. Um, and the floor table, you know, is then very practical because you just put it on the floor and you gather around it. It's not, it doesn't have to be a, a permanent object that sits in the middle of the space. It comes in, you eat and you put it away. Or if you want to gather around it, you gather around it, you talk and then you put it away, fold it easily, hang up on the wall and so on. So the kitchen is, yeah, very much uh, the space of sharing the food and uh, the space of creating uh, new ideas in that sense, you know, uh, because once you are all together, you are also talking and discussing and sharing and so on. Um, and in this case, I mean, it was also uh, really a, a, a very practical and pragmatic and straightforward way that as women to come together and to cook and to uh, even sell it and make money for the for the space and so on. Um, so how, I don't know if I can easily talk about how it would grow or go elsewhere. Uh, I mean, in the in the case of this kitchen, for instance, continues to the people are coming and going because also they are like moving, they're they running away to Germany, Sweden, you know. I mean, the, so it's also, um, yeah, the kitchen very much stays, the people come and go. Um, and I would suggest the kitchen then as a metaphor uh, that kind of repeats uh, elsewhere with other potentials and other capacities and maybe leads to other things. Because in a way, I mean, the kitchens, of course, I mean, of course, it, it works and completely makes sense. On the other hand, uh, it is often the, the kitchen is also something that sets a lot of uh, has a lot of thresholds or limitations in a way. I mean, from starting from what food is being served, from who can sit on the floor. I mean, and, uh, but also a lot of the, it implies rules of how to behave. So, 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 so it's in a way both. And there's, I mean, conflict kitchen was kind of like dressing the idea. There's a lot of conflicts uh, around, uh, or, or that can be also shown around uh, the situation in the kitchen. So the, that's maybe like this ambivalence that it's, it creates an open space, but still it also limits it in, in many ways. Can I say something and pass it, throw the ball at you in this way? I mean, you were mentioning, for instance, in the in the dome, um, how the the uh, the shell is transparent and you see the outside, which I liked a lot as a in terms of so you're inside and outside. It also kind of uh, 
creates that kind of intermediary, that shell. Um, but then also you were saying that you become the curators of that space. So the kitchen as of, um, sorry, the space maybe is the same, but the, what you kind of recreated continuously through the activities. It's, it's, it's not so easy to say something interesting and new about the kitchen, right? Because uh, it's, it's, but, but, but the, that it ju just that it serves a basic need and that on the other side, you, uh, there's so many aspects of, uh, of all the questions that are, all the, also all the big questions that are in the air and that we have to deal with, uh, makes the kitchen, of course, a super good place to actually try out something that we are all more or less incapable to do, and that is trans-epistemic uh, experience. You know, how, do we, how, how do we work together and how do we come together, how do we communicate together in a sustainable way, in a way that, uh, that relates to cultural backgrounds, that relates to, to um, age and, uh, and taste and... Uh, and uh, and so on. So there's so many things in it that uh, I think the kitchen cannot be avoided. That's one thing. The other thing, this is what we experience in the floating university, that putting the kitchen in a central place also um, makes it, uh, you, you not only have to deal with, um, with, with cooking and eating, but you also have to deal with doing the dishes and, and, and where's the food coming from? And, uh, and where is it going after? So that, you know, all the question of compost and 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 and, and, and how do you import? You know, wh what kind of choice do you make uh, in the supermarket, or do you get where do you get the food? Um, <clears throat> they, this is all uh, um, 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 super good to look very close to it in a collective way, because of course everybody does that at home. But if you if you if you if you have to do it together, uh, then all these different backgrounds and feelings and, 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 and ways that you perceive all these questions of vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, come together in one space and produce, a, 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 you can say, a conflict or an opportunity to... Uh, to, uh, to 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 de for debate, uh, that's one thing. And then, of course, there's also this moment of when when everybody's eaten and leaning back and just drinking the the last bottles of wine out. That there is this kind of this this moment of you know being relaxed and 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 uh, where suddenly a, a different form of commu communication can start. Uh, that's also great about it. So. The, uh, this is the way that we're trying to use it without making it too much. We, we are not trying to make it too much a topic. We're just using it like we use space or that we think it's necessary to look at material in a circular way and, and so on. Without, you know, but just doing it that way. And, and, but we're still talking about all the, all the big issues that need to be tackled as well. That it's a it's just a good um, um, uh, transport vehicle. I think 
that uh, I mean, in, in a way, you mentioned the concept of free enactment also with the uh, Latour project, uh, uh, which we talked also in the series with, uh, like, with Oliver Marchardt and others about. And, and that's, of course, the kitchen seems to be a good place for that, like, like, like training, pre enacting possible situations, learning a different way of interacting. So, so I think that uh, that uh, is very much, uh, very much makes sense. Um, but then uh, the the other thing I was wondering about. Is, I mean, with your projects, now with Floating University, there's a continuation, and of course some projects are, as you said, they want it again and again, but there's a certain tem temporality to, to a lot of these projects. They are, they, are, they are not meant necessarily to be there forever. They are different from architecture in, in the sense that it's not built and then it should be like the whatever, like a dome or a cathedral, and then it stands for 500 years. And I wonder that maybe this relates to this this dilemma uh, uh, a paradox of hospitality also uh, of uh, that maybe in a temporary temporary way it becomes more clear it's like more performed it's more active it's more has to be renewed all the time so this paradox on of of, of uh, what is unconditional hospitality and what are the rules which that we actually might need uh, also to to live together can be performed differently than uh, being being built in, in concrete um, but still i guess there's a need a desire to make, I mean, not only for architects, uh, even your, your special cases in that, but, but there's a desire to make things, or also need to make things sustainable, to change, to make, to change infrastructure, et, et cetera, in, in, in a way, I guess. So what, uh, what do you see these relations between these projects and making things sustainable? I don't know, for example, the Center of Spatial Justice that you work in uh, is maybe one example, but I would be interested in, in, yeah, how 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 do how do things also last, or should they last? I, I like the subject of sustainability and talking about it, especially in a theater, right? Because what is the sustainability of us being here and talking about this? Um, the, uh, it's uh, uh, one on one side, it's uh, that that we are discussing this because um, somehow we have the urge and we see the need that these things need to be discussed and have to be put somewhere somehow on. A stage, uh, and uh, and and then the audience is coming because they think it might, you know, give an inspiration somehow or ch you know, change a little bit the, the way the perspective that they have on uh, a certain aspect of the world, and uh, and then they go out and they have it or they don't have it, and 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 for me, I think this is is this is a very sustainable act because it sustains uh, with us. And it sustains with the people that come here. And th this is also the way that I see this, um, the, the, the temporality and the, 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 this, this aspect of an architecture that doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm here and I know exactly what's the right thing for this uh, urban situation. Uh, and, uh, and now I build it because I also have the money and I know the guy who owns it. And then we, and now we do it, and then it's there, and you have to deal with it. But it's uh, it's 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 very more, very much more addressing all the dilemmas that <laughs> that we are in. That that actually, if we think about them the right way, we have no fucking idea what's the right thing to do, right? We don't know which buildings to build and how what they should look like and where they should go and what would be right because we don't know about tomorrow and we don't know. 
uh, uh, who, who's going to be in the government tomorrow. We don't know if the borders close or, cl or, or open, or we, and we don't know what new pandemics are coming and, and climate change and so on. We don't know all these things. So we, we, uh, I think it's uh, in that sense, it's a good way to be sustainable in a sense that we experiment and we we propose things and then we discuss them and we look at them and we think like could this be a way to react and uh and luckily uh the, the, for example the floating university turned out to be super sustainable in times of corona because suddenly you don't have walls and you know, the air is everywhere you can go there there's no problem for everybody you, know, you don't you don't have all the problems that you have in a space like this agree and in, in like the idea of the temp temporality i think is very productive as you said like that that brings the notion that has to everything has to be negotiated and renegotiated all the time and i think that's very uh healthy for architecture for cities for governments institutions in general that um there is this possibility of porosity of permeability of things that might change. And that is a way in which we can conceive architecture. Yeah, I imagine the floating university is all the time in transformation because things happen, maybe things are damaged, you need to maintain a little bit something that it changed. So it's, it's actually another fiction. Like, first of all, the fiction of like, you can own a space. And the other is a fiction that things are fixed and you know, last forever. They have to be taken care of and maintained. So there is an ongoing transformation of millions of instances of negotiation and 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 you know, um, and agreements between different parties. And when we think about architecture in that way, I think it's a bit more, let's call it sustainable. And um, the problem is that you know we need big, big ideas for the future. But perhaps that is an idea for the future, a certain form of precarity, and I'm using this term knowing that it's a problematic one, but things that ha don't have to be completely fixed uh, because they need to be reassessed uh, continuously. And too often we are um, very fascinated of things that stand very like proudly, and I'm very scared of those. I think that, you know, when we talk about vulnerability, it's not just a care that had become very, like, you know, commonplace terms. I think there is something interesting about that in relation to architecture, that imagining that these spaces, buildings, cities, it's about that. Care, renegotiation, transformation, continue, has been always about that. And only fascists have dreams of, like, uh, yeah, lasting forever. That's the truth. That, that's the architecture that is all for posterity. It's a fascist architecture. I, w I don't know if I should say something on top <laughs> of this. It was so good. <laughs> but I mean, I, maybe the, 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 the one thing that I can mention again was the last uh, part of my uh, talk, uh, the proximity and participation, uh, which kind of complies with both of the comments here. Proximity, like the fact that we can actually sit here together uh, or we can share what we know and what we feel and what we think. Um, and then also uh, this way we participate actually in the making of something and maybe that's something yeah, we don't know. Uh, we don't know but we kind of um, anticipate uh, or hope uh, 
Uh, the, the one thing that I wanted to say in relation to also the, this kind of temporariness of the space, the kitchen, for instance, it started in the uh, ground floor of a cultural space in, in the city. Uh, but then with Corona, because we can't gather again, uh, the floor table was taken out and brought to other spaces where, you know, then it became uh, kitchen elsewhere. Uh, and then that space was uh, given away to uh, some of the new migrants coming in who are looking for a place uh, for free. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, in that sense, I don't know it is the right thing to say, but the architecture is not important at all. <laughs> not important at all. It's the possibility of creating that space continuously, and this way sustaining the space is, is, the, is the thing. But what I think is um, we have to see this process as architecture. So we, ha we, ha we have it's to, say it's a spatial practice that you're doing, and spatial practice is architecture. And we have to separate that from, from the built environment, maybe, you know, or however you want to call it, but the, you know, the, the, the walls and floors and, and, and ceiling stuff. Uh, that is uh, maybe not so relevant in the first place. Of course it is, because, let's face it, cool architecture is just nice to be in, and it also changes the way that we behave, but, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's not at the first place anymore. It's an example, perhaps, because... I mean, it's, a, it's an utopian, a dystopian example, but if you think about... Uh, an artist constant, but also that was very much connected to architecture, if, who designed New Babylon. New Babylon was precisely an architecture uh, for radical hospitality, as Mark Wigley puts it, but it was a, an architecture for a society that it was not organized around labor, but around play, and therefore it was an architecture that was continuously being redefined, where everyone was an architect. There were no architects because everyone could define the space. And there were no doors and there were no windows. There were only unlimited ways in which everyone will define their own space. And it was really a, kind of a precarious, a temporary act because it will be challenged and redefined by the others trying to do the space. And it became, and that's the pity, it became, it started as a very utopian idea of, of, of the world, of society. And Constant, as he started working on the project and inhabiting the project, realized that it was also a very violent project. So let's not be, also, let's be honest. A, a kind of unconditional hospitality, if, anyone, if any, that exists in many ways, is not necessarily something that we can achieve without certain uh, struggle. And that you can see the image of New Babylon, where, you know, there are like bodies that are being subjected to violence because that idea of like challenging the borders or challenging the space of each other, it brings a struggle, a risk conflict. But the question is, is it worth it still to try and to imagine that type of a space? I think that relates a bit also again to the uh, to the idea of the pre-enactment, like in Occupy Wall Street or in all these occupations, if you're really open and homeless people come in and, and so on, I mean, there was a lot of 
a lot of problems, a lot of violence also within the, the camps that had to be de dealt with. But as you said, it maybe was a way of, of confronting this and trying to find ways uh, to deal with. But I was thinking like also because before we were talking a bit about the architectural biennial in Venice, which was rather disappointing uh, because, and, but I think it has to do with what you were addressing uh, or like, like, yeah, there's a need for for I, don't, I forgot the exact words how you put it, but there's for ideas or for something to move on. But at the same time, maybe uh, dealing with temporary processes is the only way of doing it at the moment. And a lot of these architectural proposals still try to want to build something, but then feel it seems like they feel ah this doesn't it, we can't do this anymore, and then halfway it it, it gets stuck. Um, uh, before opening also uh, to other questions, I still would maybe uh, even so without a question related to it, could you talk a bit about the Center of Spatial Justice, uh, just uh, without co direct connection, but I think it would be important to also have it in the room. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the well, we basically we were um, a, cup, a bunch of people um, working for the uh, Ranter earthquake victims of uh, uh, 1999 earthquake in Marmara region in Turkey. Uh, and we were basically uh, all together a bunch of, let's say, architects, designers, engineers, lawyers, uh, uh, trying to uh, propose, uh, prepare a project that can be built because they, the, the renter victims, the renter earthquake victims went on a struggle for like 20 years to get the rights to the land uh, with like a, as, as if it, it is public housing. Um, and they won the court case. It was a court case, big court case, because in Turkey the law only protects the owner and not the renter. So the renters are practically homeless and they win the court case to the right to the land and the, to the right to a shelter. And then we come in as, let's say, so-called professionals to uh, prepare their project, their housing project. Um, and in this process, uh, working volunteers, uh, we kind of got to know each other better and we uh, started the Center for Spatial Justice. Also by the uh, by joining other friends, let's say. Friend, I keep using the term friends. I mean, it's all really based on friendship. Um, and then that's how it started in 2015, again, around the same time that I was actually in Turkey working on vocabulary of hospitality. Uh, and the idea of spatial justice uh, came up from, from this very beginning of this housing project because uh, justice is something that we can't necessarily, unfortunately, prove with law anymore. That we can't necessarily base on on base on the rule uh, of the legal space, but justice is the one that is needed to live all together again. You know, in uh, uh, in in a given context, uh, spa spatial justice in that sense is social, is environmental, uh, and related to the human but an understanding of human that is you know, beyond the human that we understand now, or the understanding of humanity that is beyond the understanding of humanity as we see now. So that, yeah, I mean, that's how it started. So the, uh, there are a lot of, uh, uh, the, there's a lot of research project in it going on, but also action projects. Uh, there was like a neighborhood vocabulary, again, dictionary. Uh, the idea is to kind of uh, try to be in, in connection, in solidarity with um, uh, different uh, contexts. In this case, that relates to that relate the center to the periphery, 
uh, to, let's say, housing struggles, to environmental struggles uh, that are predominantly in Turkey, uh, about rivers, dams, mining, um, but also yeah, social struggles, for instance, uh, or, uh, the, the violent urban transformation processes that are going on in the cities. Uh, it is a collective effort, so we go in and out as we work with it. Um, there are also some people who come in to work, literally, they are not part of the collective or the NGO, but they come in to work in different projects. So, yeah. Is that, I, I try to keep it short, but yeah. No, thank you, but I think the term, I mean, it's important as a project, but also the term of spatial justice is maybe good to have in the air with what we are talking about. I don't know, does someone of you have a comment or a question? Yeah, thank you so much for your ideas. Um, but I'd just like to know, um, how would you analyze the situation in this room now? Um, the so-called stage and the so-called audience and the table with chairs. So how would you analyze it through your theories and ideas? No, I mean, well, I would like to refer back to what Benjamin said earlier, the the, the sustaining of the conversation. So in that sense, um, yeah, I mean, it's a rare opportunity to, to come together in person. Uh, beyond that, maybe this, for instance, the light and so on, it's maybe not so good ideal, let's say, if we sit on us in a circle <laughs> without talking from there, for instance, these would be the... and all of us sitting in the same um, level. Maybe this is more wine. food. Wine would be great. I'm using antibiotics, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that would be an evaluation. But I think in the end, it is really about the conversation itself. So as long as you can identify with it and you have some comments on it, and if you have, if you, if it provoked you also to, to certain direction of thought, then I think it's also, it's still um, still a good one. I can maybe also, since I'm responsible for the setup to a degree, we're talking about assemblies in this series, and we have a very frontal setup, which on one hand came uh, through the logic that it very early moved online, and we didn't want to give up on the online audience, which, to be honest, is slightly bigger <laughs> than the one here tonight. Uh, but it also is in the context of assembly that I was actually, because also being part of a lot of projects with, with different approaches and also collaborating, for example, with, with Benny and others, uh, uh, I, for me, it's in a rather unusual format, but I actually have found it actually all, uh, there's also something about a certain honesty, especially in the art and the theater space. And I find a lot of, a lot of assembly situations that are created, they pretend to be open, they have wine and uh, have, a, have a whatever, a round table. Um, but uh, for me, it's also in, in the context of working within the art field, but close to, to certain activist movements, it's important to also show the difference. So sometimes I prefer a rather rigid, even maybe a little bit violent situation uh, as a curatorial choice than pretending it is something else. Uh, so, so it has to do with that. And, and the other thing is that after many years of 
different kind of situation. I also started enjoying sometimes a straightforward lecture, which I just have to listen to. But uh, but of course, I, th I think the, idea, the, the thing is that, of course, it, it provokes this question in the context when there is written assembly and you sit in the half dark. It's, a, it's an uh, obvious, no, no, it's, it's, it's an obvious question. It's good, and especially today it has to be asked. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. Is that I, will, I will say that. I mean, there is always someone that is not in the room, no? That is what's like the chorus of this architecture of hospitality. That is the potential of someone else joining unexpectedly and that you have to host. So as complicated this setting might be, it is also connected to the fact that we have a camera and we have a live stream and therefore we have to account for some whoever, a stranger that will be at the other side listening and therefore, that's why there are these lights and microphones. And, you know, sometimes this, the position like architecture completely changes by just having a camera. If we wouldn't have that, probably this setting would have already shifted. And we we'll have agreed that we, are, you know, we can sit uh, differently. But this, that's the core of hospitality, that there is a possibility of someone just joining right now in the space. And it's late. I lost most of it, but it's still. Or that's someone that none of us know and we will never know that it's also listening. And yeah, that's, that's, that's what it is. And so it really creates a strange situation, I must say. For me, because before things were streamed, but I would still say, yeah, we're in the theater and there's a stream and I would forget about it. Because this kind of had to start as a stream, it changed a bit. So, so, so for me, suddenly there's an audience in my mind that I'm uh, co-addressing, which I had, wouldn't have before with a normal stream. And at the same time, it's not a TV studio where the audience is just a prop, so there's still about some, so, so it is actually something that also for me, what, what kind of architecture of inside, outside this but is? But isn't it beautiful? Like as a question, say, okay, we try to be hospitable to each other, and like we are part of each other because we are breathing each other, we are hosting each other, but how to always be addressing you and recognizing you, and at the same time speaking of the other that is not yet or we don't even see. So that, I think, I think that's the core of the, the question, right? And for me, that's hospitality. Well, that's at the core of the idea of hospitality. Always recognizing that might be another person that is not in the room and that you are addressing while you are addressing the person that is in front of you. Well, thank you, Marina. I think that was a beautiful last sentence to end this conversation. So thanks to you all. Uh, thanks to Merve Bedia, Benjamin Förster-Baldenius and Marina otero Vezir. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. And I would just like to invite you also already to our next edition on December 15th, 2021 at 7 p.m. CET. We will have to move online again uh, because Austria is already in a shutdown and it seems like the situation is getting worse again. Uh, so we will be on a live stream together with Frederic Aituati and and Company and Co on the topic of parliaments of things and beings on December 15th at 7 p.m. And if you want, please check out our website with lots of material and other information. Thank you all for listening and hope to see you again. Brut, new art on stage.